Hello, and welcome to Starting the States, Episode 4, Part 1 of Divide in New Jersey. Before I started my research for this episode, I already had a preconceived notion that New Jersey is one of the least liked states in the Union. Part of the reason for this is when I was younger, I went on a road trip to New York City. We ended up parking our car in New Jersey and taking a train into Manhattan. I asked the person driving why we did this, to which he responded in a half-mocking, half-serious tone, because New Jersey is the parking lot of New York. The image of New Jersey as a parking lot stuck in my head ever since. I did a Google search to see if others had similar thoughts. To my surprise, I found numerous articles and Reddit threads dedicated to the questions, why do people make fun of New Jersey, and why do some people hate it? Good questions. Just why do people hate New Jersey? Is it because TV shows like Jersey Shore and The Real Housewives of New Jersey accurately depict state culture? Is it really only good for being a parking lot for New York City? Or is this continuous mockery of New Jersey the product of a smear campaign that started when the state was first colonized hundreds of years ago? I can't promise this episode will change the minds of those that see New Jersey as only good for cheap parking, but by looking at how the state got its start, we will see that early divisions within it led to many difficulties in establishing its dominance in North America, and its weakness motivated other states to try and take advantage of it. As we will see, New Jersey was fighting an uphill battle from the beginning, a battle that may have played a role in shaping how it is thought of today. The state of New Jersey sits tucked between Pennsylvania on the west and New York in the north. Its eastern border touches much of the Atlantic Ocean, and its southern border hugs the Delaware Bay. Before the arrival of Europeans, New Jersey was occupied by various Native American tribes, including the Nantecoque Lenape Lenape and the Delaware. Sources I have read state that the Lenape and the Delaware are the same people. The reasons for the two names is because the first Europeans that made contact with the Lenape called them Delaware because they lived along the Delaware River, and because Europeans could not pronounce their name correctly. As Europeans began to take their land away, the Delaware began migrating across the continent. The United States' expansion after the Revolution caused an increase in Western migration, leading to various groups becoming scattered from the tribe. According to the official website for the Delaware tribe, one group settled in Oklahoma, and two now occupy reserves in Ontario, Canada, the Delaware Nation at Moraviantown, and the Muncie Delaware Nation. On a side note, as I began writing the New Jersey episode, I noticed that many of the Native American tribes I had already spoken about were going to come up again due to their occupation spreading across the territory of many states. I realized that this is going to happen again and again as I progress through all of them, so I decided that I'm going to dedicate an episode to Native Americans. I'm going to discuss their story to the best of my ability and examine how they are grouped and classified in North America. I hope that by doing so, a clearer picture of these first peoples on the continent will begin to emerge. With that being said, let's go into the beginning of the New Jersey colony. Like Delaware, New Jersey was originally a part of the Dutch colony of New Netherlands. The land was then taken by the English after they beat the Dutch in war. Our old friend James II, Duke of York, was given the land, but since the area of land he acquired was so large, he decided to generously give up the area of New Jersey. Like Pennsylvania, New Jersey was a proprietary colony, given to an individual with the full rights of self-government, separate from the English crown. But unlike other proprietaries, New Jersey was divided in two and given to multiple owners. In 1664, the Duke of York gave the colony to two of his friends, Lord John Berkeley and Sir George Carteret, 
in hopes of gaining political favors. Dual ownership gave New Jersey the unique status of being the only proprietary colony ever broken in two. This first split sent New Jersey down a path that would lead to even more fractionalization in the colony. In 1674, Lord John Berkeley sold his half to two Quakers, John Fenwick and George Bailingi. Bailingi entered bankruptcy and claimed that Fenwick was responsible for protecting his finances. Fenwick was like, hey man, your lack of money isn't my problem, and the two entered a dispute. Our buddy William Penn of Pennsylvania mediated the disagreement that resulted in New Jersey being divided into East and West. After George Carteret died in 1680, his widow sold his half to a group of Quakers and Scotsmen. In Alan Taylor's book, American Colonies, he writes that the Scots took East Jersey near New York, while the Quakers obtained West Jersey along the Delaware River, thus creating further division along cultural and religious lines. While East and West Jersey share the proprietary system in common, its development in each half was fundamentally different. East Jersey was plagued by disorder and unrest during the proprietary period. In 1664, Richard Nichols, the Duke of York's acting governor in New York, had granted land in New Jersey to colonists from New England and New York. After the sale, Nichols started his voyage to the colonies. While Nichols was at sea, the Duke had given possession of New Jersey to Berkeley and Carteret. Because communication across vast distances was so slow at this time, sorry no Wi-Fi in the 1600s, Nichols did not find out about the Duke's sale until way after he had already made his own. As a result, New York and New Jersey argued about who rightfully owned the land. These were the opening shots of ongoing disagreements that plagued the development of East Jersey and jump-started the bitter rivalry between New York and New Jersey that can still be felt to this day. Because of the confusion created by the dual grants of land by the Duke and Nichols, settlers in East Jersey refused to pay taxes to the proprietors. They believed that the previous grants had exempted them from having to pay. By doing so, the settlers were effectively questioning the authority of the East Jersey proprietors. On top of that, questions were being raised about the legality of the proprietor's right to govern in East Jersey. Historian Maxine Lurie points out that they thought they had acquired the right to rule with the land granted by the Duke of York, but the Duke never mentioned who had the power of government in the original grant. That Duke always causing trouble. As a result, colonists who were upset with having to pay taxes for their land to East Jersey saw this as another opportunity to undermine the power of the proprietors. The proprietors discovered that their initial investment was not paying off like they thought it would. Questions surrounding the authority of the proprietors led to a period of political upheaval that further weakened the growth of the colony. Colonists who originally had land as a part of New York were upset to find out they were now part of New Jersey. As a result, riots and rebellion rocked the colony. In general, colonies were hotbeds for unrest. They took people from independent and culturally unique countries in Europe and combined them together in new territory. They were not used to living so close to people who did not think or act like them. The various ethnic and religious backgrounds led to distrust among the mixed populations, just like with what we saw in Pennsylvania. Add in New Jersey's proprietors' greedy profit motives and questions surrounding their legitimacy of authority leaves you with the perfect recipe for unrest and riots. Even though the unrest in New Jersey was not unique, 
Lurie comically points out that New Jersey was the only colony to have two of their governors literally dragged from their beds and carted off to prison. Angry New Yorkers who were upset with their new governors attacked Philip Carteret of East Jersey and John Fenwick of West. Carteret wrote that in 1675, Governor Edmund Andros of New York had, quote, sent a party to fetch me away. In the dead time of night, they broke open my doors and most barbarously and inhumanely and violently hailed me out of my bed. Fenwick later recalled that in 1677, quote, My door broken down, my person seized on in the nighttime by armed men sent to execute a paper ordered by the governor of New York. From the very beginning, the relationship between New Jersey and New York was filled with deep distrust and animosity. The constant unrest and questions surrounding their authority plagued the proprietors so much that they forfeited their right to rule, uh, if they ever had one, to the English crown in 1702. At this time, New Jersey officially became a royal colony. Surprisingly, the change of power worked out very well for the proprietors. Alan Taylor writes that, quote, while surrendering their rights to govern, the East and West Jersey proprietors still retained legal title to all frontier lands for their future sale and profit. The proprietors in the East were greedy and had trouble with unrest on their side. On the other hand, the West Jersey proprietors found more success in their colonial ventures. The West's largely homogenous population of Quakers ensured that there would be little to no conflict within the territory. They are pacifists, after all. Shares of the land in the West were spread out among many more owners than in the East, allowing greater opportunity for land ownership. In contrast, extremely wealthy landowners in the East controlled a monopoly on land rights, limiting the opportunity for others. When proprietors and settlers did come into conflict, Joseph Clett writes that a document penned by West Jersey Governor Edward Bilingi, titled Concessions and Agreements, provided the democratic principles that improved the relationship between them. Overall, West Jersey was more stable and successful than the East. The proprietors in both East and West Jersey held to a similar pattern of land ownership. Shares of the colony were divided into fractions, similar in concept to buying stock in a company today. Shareholders gained prominent political roles in the colony. Lurie writes that, East Jersey's constitution controlled access to government by prohibiting those that held 124th interest from participating, for fear they would dominate the other shareholders. Likewise, those that held a meager proportion of shares could not participate. The provisions outlined in the constitution pretty much forced proprietors to continually sell and acquire shares. Doing so meant that more and more people gained access to political roles as they acquired more shares. Fearing the continuous growth of shareholders, the proprietors in East Jersey restricted membership on its board of directors in the 1700s. West Jersey, on the other hand, divided their shares into even smaller fractions, allowing opportunity for people of less wealth. The differing social and economic development between East and West further exacerbated the division within the colony and played a critical role into the state's development. The divide was so great that Maxine Lurie writes the political and economic consequences of the split continued beyond the 18th century. The division created the conditions for competing factions to develop within each side. The Scottish and English proprietors in the East came into conflict with the Quaker proprietors in the West. Lurie points out that a disagreement over the boundary line between their two sides was responsible for the most prolonged and heated debate. 
their differences became even more pronounced during the American Revolution. The war affected the East more than it did in the West. The East would ask for assistance, but the Quakers refused to help militarily. Those pacifists. Alright, I'm going to stop here for now. Next time, we'll finish up New Jersey by looking at how the American Revolution shaped the history of the state, and continue investigating how disputes both internally and externally may have contributed to the unflattering view of New Jersey today. Thank you for listening to another episode of Starting the States.